You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasse, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to the show today. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm keeping well. I just uh, had a bit of a track coming in with the traffic, but uh, I'm here. You like and to cut it, it close, eh? You give us all a sweat. Um, <laughs> it, I guess it comes with... with uh, with the territory, I yeah, guess. Yeah, you know your way here. You're, you're <laughs> never late. Just that one day. I still remember that one day last year where we both raced in yeah, here. And, and I think flipped we both off ten. the chair. Yeah. Remember that <laughs> I one? do remember that. I'm sure our listeners do too. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. Yeah, I know it's... Uh, the traffic was okay for me today. It was not too bad at all. So I, I was down I'm, I'm glad you're here. And, and of course, Daniel's here to uh, help me out when I, when I need it. So yep, absolutely. The show must go on. The show must go on. So I finished my juice fast. That was a five-day bonanza, yeah. and so and so you made it through. I did, obviously. Yep. So I think t- Tuesday, uh, Tuesday was day two, day three, and day four went okay. Day four night was um, I felt good on day four, so I thought you know I'm going to do some exercise, and it was a a big mistake. I went to bed with a headache and hungry. And uh, didn't sleep at all that night, but I got through it. I started introducing some f- uh, fiber on Friday because I just felt that after four days of just juicing. Kind of need it, huh? I yeah. did need it. Yes. And uh, yeah, it was a good thing that I did that. But you know, it's it took me a couple of days to, to eat uh, again. I just, I was, just took me a couple of days to get back into the swing of food. Five days was a long time. Um, it was, it was good. My daughter and I did I was so proud of her. So proud of her. She she really uh, did a good job with it. But I think next time I'll do a three day. I th- the, the hardest part for me was all the juice, like just the copious yeah, amounts of water. Th- this was your this was your first uh, first uh, juice fast, right? First five day. First yeah. five day. Yeah. Oh, so you've done previous ones yeah. before? Okay. Yeah. But uh, just I mean, it was seven five hundred milliliters of bottles of juices plus water and tea. It was just so much. Mm-hmm liquid i just had I, I was over it but very worthwhile i do feel much better um i would do it again but again i think i'd, I'd pare it down to the three day but uh the five day was a it was a good challenge and maybe wait a while before you do that oh i'll be waiting a while <laughs> yeah i'll be waiting a while maybe quarterly we'll see we'll see when the next thing strikes me we'll see what shannon wants to do Our show today is live. You can call in at 416-245-1534. Please follow us on our social sites, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Our handle is at the Health Hub RMC. And our email address is thh at radiomaria.ca. If you have anything to ask us, uh, questions about our show today or previous shows or need information on any of our guests, 
we do respond quite quickly and are very happy to hear from you. Our shows, our live shows are all, uh, and our tape shows are all turned into podcasts. So please subscribe to our podcast. We are called The Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, SoundCloud, and all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find all of our podcasts on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is www.radiomaria.ca. And you can find them on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. And leave us a comment if, if you like what you hear. We always appreciate hearing back from you. Our show last week with John Leland from the New York Times, Happiness is a Choice, is up and ready for you to listen to. And I listened to that again. And uh, again, I love the music. It was just great. I just bebopped all the way home listening to the music. So it was, it was great. So we are heading into the winter weather. And as I was putting my hand cream on uh, a couple of days ago, you know, I, I always like to have something interesting to sort of start the show off with. And I thought, you know what, dry skin is a good one because I've got all this cream by my uh, bed stand and I'm rubbing it all over me. And I think, why is my skin so dry? But for those of us who are exposed to cold winter months, dry skin can be a problem. I mean, it's not the only cause of dry skin exposure to harsh chemicals and certain types of skin diseases and just the 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 process of aging can dry out our skin and even though it might sound counterintuitive water can actually dry out our skin and especially if you're using hot soapy water the water uh, and the soap can strip the protective oils from our skin so it leaves us uh, vulnerable to dry skin so I just wanted to um, give you a few suggestions to cope with dry skin uh, through the winter months. Number one, um, a number one that I found uh, really helped with the dry skin in our house is making sure that your uh, laundry detergent is very gentle and very natural. That can really cause some some irritation if you have some products that uh, are on your clothes and, and bother your skin. Uh, drinking enough water, so water on your hands is not ideal, but water in your body does work really well to keep us hydrated and uh, help with the dry skin. Decreasing caffeine, um, some teas that have caffeine, colas, alcoholic drinks, these have a diuretic effect, so they drain the water from our system. So, um, you know, pairing those back a bit can also be helpful. Turning down the temperature in our baths and showers, as I just mentioned uh, before, the hot the hot water can strip and, and wash away some of the, the good oils to protect our hands. That's something that's going to be difficult for myself to do. I like I like hot showers. You like the but, hot showers? Yeah. Well. But, um, you know, from time to time. Do you have dry skin? Yeah, that's possibly the reason why. Yeah, there you go. So this is a good, 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 good tips for me. I'm taking Sorry, it Alex. All in. Yeah, that's no problem. Cool down the showers and, and don't use soap that's harsh on your body. Yes. <laughs> You can't. Well, here, here you go. When you get out of the shower, put some raw honey on you. Well, raw honey and I'll be sweet all day. That's you'll be for sure. sweet. Well, at least on the outside. I don't know. There you go. Uh, for, it penetrates. It'll get you on the inside Let's too. Hope so. <laughs> so you can use raw honey. I know it's sticky. You can reuse uh, products. There are a lot of products now on the market that have some raw honey in them. And honey is great for hydrating your skin if you are using. Um, if you say you have a few areas on your body that you'd just like to apply some raw honey to, uh, do so. Leave it on for 15, 20 minutes and uh, then remove it. Simple enough so you don't have to stick to all your clothes. 
Uh, supplementing with omega-3 fatty acids or eating foods that contain them, such as wild-caught salmon, walnuts, chia seeds. Omega-3s are really, really important for uh, building the oils up in your skin. And there are some moisturizers that um, are really good for your skin. Coconut oil and jojoba oils. Jojoba oil is one of the closest oils um, to your actual skin type. And another oil that um, is becoming more and more mainstream um, is sea buckthorn oil. It's less commonly known, but it really has some good uh, regenerative and restorative actions, so you can use those. Um, And again, you know, being a nutritionist, getting adequate sleep and adequate nutrition is very helpful. When we sleep ourselves, that's the time that we repair so we can repair some of the dry and damaged skin and then uh, practically get a humidifier. Um, The cold weather coupled with rising the temperature in your house can uh, really cause the, the moisture in the air to be sucked out. So using a humidifier, you can get one that you can plug in. You can even, I think, I think they have ones that you can have essential oils into. So there you go. So just a few tips to help you through the uh, winter months with some dry skin. And on to our guest today. Our guest is Dr. Mansour Mohammed. He has his Bachelor of Science Specialized Honors in Molecular Genetics from the University of Guelph. He received his Doctor of Philosophy with Distinction in Molecular Genetics and Immunology from the University of Guelph as well. Dr. Mohammed obtained his postdoctoral clinical cytogenetics fellowship from the University of California and his postdoctoral clinical cytogenetics fellowship from Baylor College of Medicine at Houston. Dr. Mansour is the president and CEO, a COO, excuse me, of the DNA company, a leading and innovative provider of comprehensive functional genomics testing and consulting and an industry first individually customized supplements. He is wild, widely regarded as a pioneer in medical genomics and has been the recipient of multiple academic and industry awards. He is the holder of several patents in the field of molecular genetics and genomics research and is one of the most sought-after national and international conference speakers in the genre of personalized medicine. Prior to his role at the DNA company, Dr. Mansur was founder and president of Menagene, CEO of Comba Matrix, a NASDAQ-traded leader in diagnostic genomic microarrays, director of genomics at Quest Diagnostic, and he was the director of research and development at Spectral Genomics, one of the industry's first commercial genomic microarray developers, microarray developers. Dr. Mansour maintains an active clinical practice as a genomics consultant to some of the leading executive health clinics in Canada and abroad. What a wonderful, wonderful CV. Learning points today is what is functional genomics? Learning points today are, I guess is the proper grammar. What are functional genomics? What is the role that genetic testing can play in our health? And are all genomic testings created equal? When we get back, we will speak with our guest, Dr. Mansour Mohammed.
I'm running through your heart Till I am a soul on fire Lord, I'm longing for your ways I'm waiting for the day You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody, to the show. Our number is 416-245-1534 if you would like to call in and ask uh, Dr. Mansour, myself, or Alex some questions. Please do follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Health Hub RMC. Good morning, Dr. Mansour. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, and no, and thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. I think that we are going to be able to teach. Uh, you will be able to teach everybody so much. Now, let's let's start right at the beginning. Why is it important for us to understand what our genes are, and why are you so involved in this area of um, your research? I think the, the answer is fairly simple, and that is our genes make up essentially what we might refer to as our operating manual. So our genetic makeup, collectively known as our genome, the language of which is DNA. So DNA might be viewed as the language, the lettering, the structure of this this genomic makeup, this, this operating manual. And if we're if we if we're to have any chance of up understanding the human body, understanding how it responds, the various jobs that it has to do in order for us to have optimal health, like anything else, we'd want to understand that operating manual. So to summarize and simply, understanding genetics in its fullest form, in its fullest capacity, is understanding this amazing operating manual that we've inherited from mom and dad. And if we are to be as healthy as we can possibly be, i.e. if we are to optimize our health as individuals, it behooves intelligence that we'd want to read this operating manual and make sure that we're, A, understanding that manual as appropriate and using it, so to speak, as it was meant to be used. So uh, things are shifting when we talk to gene, we talk about genes and genetics. And, you know, prior to what you have been trying to cultivate here, our, um, our understanding of genes were this is what you have and this is what's going to happen. Yes. Enlighten us on how this is changing. So what you're referring to is the, you know, the, the older, might I say, sort of deterministic, even sometimes fatalistic perspective of genetics, which was a viewpoint that says, if I have, or if I've inherited such and such version of such and such gene, then I can't do anything about it. Um, this understanding now is under considerable, you know, retooling, a reappreciation of what our genetics means, which is not to say that certain versions of certain genes can and will be deterministic in its outcome. We must still acknowledge that there are still certain things, certain genes, that if you had a particular version of it, the outcome is almost certainly clear and deterministic. But for the vast majority of other things, understanding your genetic makeup is not meant to be, nor should it ever be fatalistic or overly predeterministic. What it should do is it should give you an understanding of your predisposition, a general set of parameters of, okay, here's how my body here, based on my this amazing legacy, this, this operating manual that I've inherited, here are 
the general normal parameters parameters that my genomic legacy, legacy dictates for myself. And within those parameters, there are incredible there is an incredible amount of flexibility vis-a-vis the outcome, your outcome, your health outcome. So it is not as deterministic as we once thought. And this is a big piece, at least personally for me, this is a big piece of what I would like everybody to understand because there are some genetic tests that tell you what your genes are or whatever number of genes that they're measuring and then leave you. And yes. what you're doing, that instills fear, and it instilled fear in me. And mm-hmm. But what you are doing and what you are saying and what your research is continually, continually finding is that we can understand what our uh, genes are, are not, what we have, what we don't. And then you and the testing will enable us to try and work with what we have to better our health. Certainly. So let's, it's a, I think it's a perfect pivot point to clarify or give some basic examples of the various type of genetic findings that might on the one hand be deemed somewhat deterministic, i.e. disease associated, and then other times less so. So that we can really begin as, as a population, because I think you hit it on the head, Kathy. There's so much information out there. On the one hand, it's a good thing that DNA, genetics, thanks to certain companies, have become, you know, sort of a talking point. It's now dinner talk in many households. And this is a good thing. It's raising an awareness of something that I think should be raised an awareness of. However, on the other hand, we fall into the trap that we're taking something that, let's, let's face it, it is fairly, you know, it's not trivial. It's quite complex. Really intelligently understanding genetics is not a trivial thing. But when it is placed to the consumer market in an overly trivialized manner, we run the risk of, precisely, over-trivializing something that was really meant to be much more substantive. So, let's start with something like cystic fibrosis, a fairly debilitating disease, uh, illness, uh, well-documented, and there are changes in the gene, the cystic fibrosis gene, that lead to the development of cystic fibrosis, such that if you inherited said changes, if you inherited these perturbations to what would otherwise have been a normal, uh, optimal version of that gene, if you inherited those changes, it's close to the point of diagnostic. It is almost certain that you're, during development, that a physiologic pathway will be changed, it will be perturbated such that the end outcome will be a disease. So here's an example of a genetic change, a mutation, what we would call it, that were you to have inherited this mutation and was it to be determined that you did inherit this mutation, the outcome that might be expected is somewhat something close to deterministic. Okay, so this is, this is on one end of the spectrum. Now let's shift a little a gene that is often spoken of now, especially because of its uh, increased awareness around things like breast cancer. And also, let's also face it, because of certain personalities, media personalities, uh, uh, that because they speak of their genetic findings, it becomes something that the average population wants to learn about. And I'm speaking here of the BRCA gene. So there is the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes that have now become far more popularized vis-a-vis its association, and notice I say association, with things like breast cancer. 
So I can't tell you, Kathy, how many patients that come in to see me, and even, believe it or not, clinicians that speak to me asking, does my patient have the BRCA gene? Now, notice how that's phrased. Mm-hmm. Or a patient coming in and saying, saying to me, oh, my God, Dr. Mansur, I have the BRCA gene. And often trying to keep it a little lighthearted, I would have to say, well, I'm glad you do. And I do as well. So here's the point. We all have the BRCA gene. In fact, we all have two copies of each of the BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene. And we are supposed to have the BRCA gene. So let's go, Kathy, from, I think you will agree with me, in general, the very superficial understanding of this BRCA gene, no one wants to say they have it because it's somehow been felt over in the public media in this, you know, sort of consumerized version of this, the BRCA gene equals cancer. Now, let's look at how grossly misrepresented this is. And we will also use the talking, uh, the talking topic to differentiate versus the cystic fibrosis mutation, how other gene changes are not deterministic, but they may be risk associations. So now going back to the BRCA gene, first and foremost, we all have it. And secondly, we all want it. Why? Because the BRCA gene, believe it or not, does an incredibly important job in our cells. The BRCA gene is actually an editing gene. It edits. It looks for spelling errors in our operating manual. You see, because if our operating manual, the genome, our genetic makeup, if it starts as we age and as we're exposed to numerous things in our environment, both externally and internally, we introduce these errors, spelling errors, one might say, in that operating manual. And the more and more errors that creep in, just like the analogy of an operating manual, the more and more errors, whether they be spelling or grammatical errors in an operating manual, the more errors creep in, the more difficult it becomes to read, interpret, and effectualize what is in that manual. So what the BRCA gene does is it actually constantly edits and corrects our operating manual. And believe me, you want that to happen. So where is this thing that the BRCA gene equals cancer? What actually is happening is if you have a mutation or mutations in your BRCA gene, this gene that is doing the all-important editing job to your operating manual, essentially what is happening is your spell check in your word program becomes faulty. So now here you are typing away a Word document, assuming that spell check is going to pick up all of the errors you're making. And when the BRCA gene is mutated, that is no longer happening. So now let's summarize. A mute, not having the BRCA gene. Having the BRCA gene, you want to have the BRCA gene. You need the BRCA gene. But inheriting or developing a mutation in the BRCA gene then inhibits, it makes an error in the job that this gene is supposed to do. Therefore, you're no longer editing your DNA. You're no longer catching the errors that creep in. And they all, we all have these errors that creep in as we get older. Some of us more than others because of environmental insults, lifestyle choices, nutritional choices. We're all faced with these errors as we go about this beautiful journey called life. And we need that BRCA gene to keep our DNA 
catalog, our, our operating manual, to keep it in its original, you know, properly edited form. That mutation prevents that or it reduces the efficiency of our editing. And then, therefore, those errors accumulate. And at some point in time, if there are too many DNA errors in any given cell, such as your, you know, the mammary glands of the breast, then those cells with too many DNA errors can start to misbehave. And now we have the true etiology of a cancer. So now let's pause there for a moment. I hope to you and to the audience, we now have a refreshed view and that we wouldn't use these misnomers associated with the BRCA gene, number one. Number two, that what we really begin to understand here is even if there is a mutation in the BRCA gene, it does not equal cancer. But let me be careful. What it equals is a reduced ability to correct changes errors in the DNA, and we all have them, some more than others. So the real emphasis should be, if we carry a BRCA mutation, if we've inherited it, if it, it's showing up in our familial lineage, what we need to be much more mindful of is, what are our lifestyle changes? What are our environmental exposures, nutrition choices? What are other genetic phenomena that can then really push us over the edge, really cause too many DNA changes, that's the real core concern. So we go from something like cystic fibrosis and the mutation within that gene that is fairly deterministic to something like the BRCA gene mutation, which is not deterministic in and of itself. It is a predisposition that then is going to rely upon other factors that push us over the edge. And then we enter, slowly going down this gradation, we enter into the vast majority of genes that we can study for which the, a change in that gene, which equals a change in the function that that gene was meant to accomplish, because that's what genes are. Genes are paragraphs within our genetic manual that tells the cell how to do such and such job, just like the cystic fibrosis gene, the BRCA gene, but most of the other genes in our genetic makeup. The job that that gene is dictating to the cell if there is a variation or mutation in that gene, it's usually not that that job is going to be so badly done, so off normal that it will equal a disease, but rather it will start to influence cellular function in a way that were we not to compensate for those suboptimal jobs, over time we would be at an increased risk of certain health concerns. So this is the variegation in genetics from that which might be more deterministic to the vast majority that is not deterministic and to the vast majority that if we did understand certain genes that are misbehaving or not as optimal as we would like, which equals certain cellular functions that are not as optimal as we would like, what we really need to be asking ourselves, Kathy, is what is that function? What is that thing in the cell that is not getting done as efficiently as I would otherwise have wanted it? And can I do something to augment, to mitigate, to mitigate that suboptimal job that's being done 
so as to avoid a detrimental outcome. And what is remarkable, Kathy, is there is so much we can do once we really appreciate with intelligence what that gene was meant to do, what a variation in that gene is inhibiting or reducing the optimability of, and then what can we do from a lifestyle perspective, both the avoiding as well as the doing more of, from a nutritional perspective, both the avoiding as well as having more of, and from the environmental considerations that we, that, that, that we allow ourselves to be exposed to. There is so much that we can do to optimize our health once we begin from an intelligent starting point. And, and I, have gone on. that is so important. And we're just going to go to a break here. But what I want to make sure that we're ending off this segment with is, is that understanding that we can compensate. And I think Absolutely. that that is a huge piece that we need to understand. And when we get back, uh, Dr. Mansour, I'd like to uh, have you talk about what differentiates your test, underscoring this compensation with other tests that we're more familiar with. We'll be right back. There's got to be more than going back and forth from doing right to doing wrong. Cause we were taught that's who we are well, Come on, get in line right behind me You along with everybody Thinking there's worth in what you do Then like a hero who takes the stage When we're on the edge of our seat Saying it's too late Well, let me introduce you to amazing Yeah. 
You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are having a fascinating discussion here with Dr. Mansour. We covered a lot of information that first half. Um, and what I what I hope that you've taken out of this is that um, what Dr. Mansour is telling you is that getting these tests done will illuminate possible weaknesses that we may have in, um, in our health issues and also give us an understanding of how we can compensate for that. So obviously, Dr. Mansour, your tests are, are vastly different from some of the more popular tests that we see on TV. And maybe it's important that we distinguish now why your testing is so much different than the common tests that we know about. Excellent. And this is by no means anything that I'm about to say is not to negate or diminish the benefit of other tests that are out there. I think that many of these tests have done a good service to at least bringing this important point, this topic DNA into the common parlance. But I always ask from a geneticist perspective, there's really only one thing that I want to know about DNA, about genetics. I want to know what it's telling me about the function of the human body. Anything else might be interesting, might be cool, but it's not doing anything for me if it's not telling me something about the operational functionality of the human body, which brings into point the type of testing that we do, Kathy, is known as functional genomic testing. And I go back very quickly to the analogy that your genomic makeup, this amazing legacy that you've inherited from mom and dad, it's an operating manual. So what you should be asking yourself when you get a genetic test done is you should be asking, is something about that test, the information that I'm getting from it, is it explaining to me, is it helping me understand my genomic manual? Is it really helping me to appreciate how something is working such that I can use that aspect of my body in the most optimal manner, such that, i.e., if it is less optimal than I would like, I should know, I should be given a sense of what might I do to compensate, as you so beautifully pointed out. And with this in mind, the final thing that you should need, that the consumer needs to understand, is going back again to that analogy of the operating manual, a manual, if I am your genetic test, in its ability to, or it's in its job to help explain that manual, what it's really doing is the human genetic manual is awesome. It knows how to do all of the things that the human body needs to do. That's the miracle of the human operating manual, our genetic makeup. So really what we're doing with these genetic tests is we're asking, is there any place or places in that manual for which there might have been an error? And what we're really doing is we're trying to detect those errors, knowing where they came from, knowing which genes they were associated, knowing which functions in the body those genes were associated with. And again, we build a big picture because ultimately, that's what we're interested in, understanding how this affects the operation of the human body. And what am I getting at here? A genetic test, therefore, should not just be looking at spelling errors within the operating manual. See, our operating manual, just like any operating manual, 
the type of things that can go wrong, the type of errors that can be made in it are multifarious. There are errors in which spelling errors had happened. There are errors in which they may be considered more grammatical errors have happened. And there are errors in which deletions, part of the manual, a page may have inadvertently been ripped out or missing. A paragraph may have inadvertently been missing. As, as almost overly simplistic as this sounds, you would be amazed, Kathy, and the audience, how relevant this is to our genetic operating manual, that in fact, our genetic inheritance, our genes, have examples of errors across the entire spectrum, examples that are equivalent to spelling errors, grammatical errors, deletion errors. And it brings me to the point, therefore, that if you are really, if ultimately, you're not looking for a superficial appreciation of this manual, but rather you're really looking to read it, understand it, and therefore understand where there are errors of all of the preceding examples, your genetic test must be able to detect, elucidate, and explain all of the types of errors that I previously mentioned. Spelling errors, grammatical errors, deletion errors. The test that we developed, Kathy, is of that caliber because we are interested in the functional outcome. We're not interested in superficial single gene sort of pieces of information. That's important. That's good. But they don't really tell you how the body is working. So for the consumers out there, Kathy, in summary, what I would say is if what you want from your test is really an understanding of how the body works such that I might adapt, I might, I might compensate where necessary, what you need to understand is the functional nature of your genetic makeup. And to understand the functional nature of your genetic makeup, you better make sure your genetic test is covering all of the varieties of errors, spelling, grammatical, deletion, which most of the tests out there, as good as they may be, are almost all, and in conclusion, they almost all look at only the spelling errors. And that's fine. And I will end with the very simple but appropriate analogy. If when you've written a document on Word, all you did was did a spell check, which is good, and you handed in that essay that you wrote without checking the grammar, without checking to see if you'd inadvertently deleted a sentence. You see, if you've deleted a sentence... If you've deleted a paragraph, there's no spelling error to be checked for. It's deleted. It's gone. It doesn't mean that the end product is accurate. All of these things your genetic test should be looking for, and if they are not looking for these things, which the vast majority of tests out there, as good as they may be, are only spell checkers. They're not grammatical checkers. They're not deletion checkers. And this is where you've got a limitation in the tests that are out there. And, you know, not to make a commercial pitch of it, but that's why when we're looking at clinical relevance, our tests are designed to look for all of the relevant errors that might be present. I hope that explains things, Kathy. Absolutely, it does. And I think maybe to bring it all home, let's talk about something, uh, a cardiovascular disease. And let's, mm-hmm. if, if you might, um, a common issue that arises within the genetic makeup of someone who has a cardiovascular issue within arteries, veins, whatever, I think it would really enlighten everybody if you could take us down that pathway of how you would explain to somebody who has a genetic predisposition to something within the cardiovascular system, a a topic of your choice, and really bring home to them how you 
piece this whole picture together when you're explaining it to them. Beautiful. So let's take an example. If you're going to get a genetic test, and there are those out there, and they're good ones, that says, here's a gene that we all have. Here is the version of that gene that you have. And because of this version, you have a 30% increased risk of cardiovascular disease or heart disease. Now, Kathy, ultimately, the audience, the listener should ask, what does it mean that I've inherited a 30% increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Like, what does that actually mean for me? Does it mean that if I live 30 more years, 30% longer lifespan, I will likely have a heart episode? Does it mean if in three lifetimes, at least one of them, I will have a heart episode? What does that actually mean? To whom and to what is my 30% increased risk relevant? Now, as opposed to that, let's take the principles of functional genomics, which is what I've briefly described earlier, and let's put it into practice. Let's understand that cardiovascular disease is what? Cardiovascular disease, unlike what most people think, is a disease that begins in the vasculature, the blood vessels. You see, it is, the, it is largely, much, much more often, it is our blood vessels that become diseased, and then over time, the disease, the dysfunction with our blood vessels puts a certain strain on our heart such that it ends in an episode involving a heart you know, episode, a heart attack, or some other manifestation of cardiovascular disease. So once you understand the real operational, what goes wrong, what is, what is supposed to, A, what is supposed to be happening, and B, what is not happening efficiently, we can begin to assemble an intelligent functional genomic test as thus. The first thing that you want to know about cardiovascular disease is you want to know that those cells, your cells that line your blood vessels, these poor cells, that lining of your blood vessels, it's known as the endothelium. Now, these endothelia cells, the endothelium, those are the poor cells that are subjected to the things dissolved in your blood at any given waking, sleeping moment of your life. Now, what are the things that can be dissolved in your blood? Well, everything that we're exposed to. When we eat, right now, a couple of hours after my breakfast, my, what is in my blood, including the intentional of it, the nutrients that I ate, the sugars from the carb that I ate, the healthy fats, or hopefully healthy fats from the fats that I ate, the stimulants in the coffee that I drank, and so all of those things in my bloodstream circulating, having been digested and absorbed, are present in my bloodstream, and they weren't there when I first got up this morning, or they weren't there at that level when I first got up this morning. So our bloodstream, that which is dissolved in it, is constantly changing in reflection to the decisions we make nutritionally, environmentally, mentally, because after all, when I got up this morning, I was in my own bedroom, I had to schlep to work, I had to be exposed to, you know, a modern environment with its pollutants in it, such that two hours after, there are things that I've breathed in that are now circulating in my bloodstream. What is the point that I'm making here? In your bloodstream, there can be aid, there can be substances, substrates that are toxic, that are inflammatory. Depending on the choices we make, and it's going to differ from person to person, these substrates, these things, these chemicals in our bloodstream can be inflammatory to those poor cells that are lining the blood vessels, those poor cells that are constantly exposed to what is in the bloodstream. Now, hold on. Beautifully, we can think of those cells as a Teflon coating. You see, when we're born... 
the lining of our blood vessels are typically non-stick. We want the lining of our blood vessels to be Teflon-coated. And I think we can all visualize that what, what that means. We want the lining of our blood vessels to be non-stick. Believe it or not, there are genes, there are genetic markers that indicate to us the quality of our Teflon coating, such that for one person, he or she might have inherited a Teflon coating, euphemistically speaking, to the lining of the blood vessels that is much, much more resilient than another person. Now look what this means from a functional perspective. You see, if you now understand that the, gen you, the genetic markers that dictate, that influence the quality of the lining of the blood vessels, if you understand that your genetic markers were of a lesser quality, that your Teflon coating functionally is not as resilient, not as a good quality, well, just like if someone gave you a cheap Teflon-coated frying pan, if you were going to use that cheap frying pan, knowing that it's a you know, knockoff, it's not a very good quality Teflon-coated frying pan, you are going to do certain things differently, aren't you? You're going to make sure that the sponge with which you clean that frying pan is not as abrasive. You're going to make sure that the spatula that you use with that frying pan is not you know, metallic. It's not going to scratch because the Teflon coating is already not very good. Similarly, when we begin to use genetics intelligently and absolutely we can help to determine is your Teflon coating to your blood vessels more resilient or less resilient? Number one. Now, after determining that, we've set a parameter. We've set a stage for not saying that the person with the cheap quote-unquote Teflon coating is going to get vascular disease, but he or she, if she knew, he knew that he had the cheaper, the less resilient blood vessel lining, certain choices that he or she may have made, whether it be to say, well, gosh, I've got an uncle who smoked from, you know, since he was 15 and now he's 80 and he's healthy as, a, you know, as, as anyone else. Well, good for him, but not for you. You see, because the chemicals found in cigarette smoke, the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons are notoriously abrasive once they get dissolved into your bloodstream, to the lining of those poor endothelial cells. And if you knew specifically that your endothelial cells was much less robust, you cannot blindly make choices given someone else's choices for yourself. So we start with this functional makeup. What is the lining of your blood vessel like? Then we add to that. We say, okay, now that we know whether you've got a resilient or less resilient Teflon coating, what would have been the things that would have abrased said Teflon coating? Well, the things that would have abrased said Teflon coating would be toxins in the bloodstream, which obviously would have reflected your lifestyle choices, your environmental exposures, your nutritional choices. Good. But there's a genetic component to this. You see, the ability with which the human body is able to detoxify, to neutralize, to get rid of many of these agents that if and when they were in the bloodstream could have been abrasive, the genes that dictate that ability, that efficiency of detoxification can be queried. We can actually look at some of the most important of these detox genes, not because, well, you know, you're a good detoxifier, you're a poor detoxifier, but in this case, much more functionally. You see, because if you then determined that your detox capacity, the capacity of 
for example, liver function, the enzymes that are working in the liver to neutralize at any given point in our day, in our lives, the things that we are exposed to with the constant infiltration into our bodies, intentionally, unintentionally, of toxins. If we then knew that our detox capacity was suboptimal, and we knew that the lining of the blood vessels were, was less resilient, we now begin to assemble a functional matrix, an actual operational understanding that, hey, if and when I make silly lifestyle environmental choices and I introduce intentionally, unintentionally, toxins into my bloodstream, I need to know I'm not the best detoxifier, which is determinable. I then need to know that if those toxins that I'm exposed to, they will circulate in my bloodstream longer than I would have liked because my ability to negate them, neutralize them, and excrete them are not as optimal as the other Joe. And by the way, the longer these toxins stay into the bloodstream, the more chance they have at abrasing my, by the way, not very resilient lining to the blood vessel. Aha. Uh -huh. Now, Kathy, this is intelligent genomics. We be, this is functional genomics. And by the way, not only are toxins, and I'm going to end with this, not only are toxins abrasive to the lining of the blood vessels, surplus sugars in our bloodstream are notoriously abrasive to the lining of our blood vessels. Surplus oxidants, oxidants, the things that happen, again, based on environmental, nutritional, lifestyle, stresses increase the oxidant levels in the body. All of these things dramatically increase the abrasive, quote-unquote, nature of our blood, which then dramatically increases the potential that the lining of our blood vessels become abrased. And then how, Cathy, in conclusion... How does the body respond to the abrasion of the inner lining of the blood vessels? The body responds by producing and depositing lipids, fatty substances, your cholesterol. You see, cholesterol isn't the big bad monster. First of all, cholesterol is the root molecule of so many incredibly important things in the body, from our hormones to our cell membranes to so many other things. But our cholesterol, our lipids, are actually also the body's attempt, the, the body's attempt to soothe that abrased inner lining of the blood vessels. So now we begin to understand that if we're going about life thinking that we're eating healthily, exercising well, but over the years our blood cholesterol levels are pointing north and we're not making blood cholesterol the big bad monster, but there is a value to it. You see, because if those levels start creeping up over and over and creeping and getting higher and higher, and you're thinking, gosh darn it, not only am I eating the same, I'm actually eating better, I'm living better, I'm, you know, exercising. That increased blood cholesterol is actually oftentimes a reflection that your body is trying to compensate for abrasion to the lining of the blood vessels. And that is why your blood cholesterol levels are going up. And what you really have to search for is what is in your exposure, lifestyle, diet, environment that is causing the abrasion in the first place. And to help you better understand why this is happening in your body, Proper and intelligent genetics should begin by telling you, not that you've got a 30% increased risk of heart disease because of one single gene, but rather, in conclusion, A, 
What is the quality of the lining of your blood vessels? Good Teflon coating, less resilient Teflon coating. What is your capacity to detoxify? High capacity to detoxify, reduce the suboptimal capacity to detoxify. What is your ability to respond to blood sugars vis-a-vis efficient insulin production. Are you at risk for insulin resistance? Yes or no. But now it's not just about, do I have a risk of diabetes? Yes or no, type two, but rather, how am I dealing with those blood sugars? Because those blood sugars, if not dealt with efficiently, are abrasive. Then also the genes that influence the trafficking of my lipids, because now I understand that the trafficking of my lipids in my bloodstream isn't just an issue of, oh my goodness, I've got hypercholesterolemia, but rather it is an issue that the trafficking of the blood cholesterols and lipids, it's being trafficked to the lining of your blood vessels precisely because it's attempting to heal the abrasion of your blood vessels. It's it's a fascinating um, piece that I don't think we understand. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to to end here because I want to make sure that everyone has the information um, that we need. And I think you've done a beautiful job of explaining and interweaving how understanding what our genome is, how through your testing, we can take the necessary steps for our better health. It's a saliva test done, and it can be ordered uh, through a doctor or a naturopath. Is that correct? That is correct. So any okay. healthcare provider that is determined, it, this is only available through healthcare providers. And yes, it's a saliva test and your healthcare provider can order this from us on your behalf. Okay. If you do not have a healthcare provider as such, you can actually call us and we will assign to you a healthcare provider. And we will give you all this information, the company name, where you can contact uh, Dr. Mansour and his company. Um, maybe you give us a website that we could just tell everybody. Absolutely. And the, there are two because we've got two umbrella companies. The first is www.thednacompany.com. So just simply the T-H-E. T-H-E, D-N-A, D-N-A, company, thednacompany.com. And the second is our subsidiary, utrients.me. So www.utrients, a play in the word nutrients, Y-O-U-T-R-I-E-N-T-S dot M-E. Please note that the Utrients website is a dot me. The DNA company website is a dot com. Thank you so much. We will put that up for everybody. Thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation, Dr. Mensor. We could have you on for two or three hours. Everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi here on Radio Maria Canada.